it could be a conversation. Technically, the two of us are communicating. Barely, but yes. Hi everyone, we are back with the second half of season one of the third sub. Today we have Loy Kwan Peng with us, who is one of two coaches of River Valley High School, and he recently took over that job at the start of this year. Um, I've known him for a while because he assisted me with NJC last year when I had to take care of the main MIDC's team and uh, he assisted me by uh, looking after the, the team, that, the second team that we sent uh, to that competition. And he did a really, really good job. So um, I'm grateful to him for that. He's a communications major at NTU. So today we discussed... Um, the principles of communicating and how they might be relevant to certain debate motions at DJG's level. Um, I debated for three years, I suppose, um, back in NJ. So that would be in my sec for J1 and J2 year. Or sec three, oh, that would make it four. Four years or so. And yeah, I guess <laughs> that's about it. Nothing special about it. How, how is being a coach? It's fun actually. Um, I I don't think any of my kids are listening to this. So in fact, actually, I was I was initially thinking, hmm, how do I advertise a debate podcast for them, knowing that hey, you know, I'm gonna be part of it at some point in time, which means I'm just going to advertise myself to a certain extent. The kids are gonna call me out for that. Are they? Because I I figure that kids can get pretty excited when they hear their coach's voice on Spotify. Um, not my kids. My kids are disgusted. Yeah, I but, think most uh, kids. I think most kids are actually terrorized <laughs> by their coach's voice at this point in time. But how has it been? I mean, it's it's quite interesting because you've really been thrown into a trial by fire, right? Yeah. With the with the pandemic and and, and all. Um, and this being your first year of coaching. Being your first year of coaching, I suppose this excuses you from certain things like, oh, let's see how well you've done over the course of the year in terms of training the kids. I guess you can't really see that now. It's just a bit of a pity, I suppose. Um. It's been really fun, I mean, but the difference in this case is that now you are their coach and they're expecting you to, to give you the answers to everything and, 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 and sometimes you, you know, you just have to be the bad guy and not give them the answers. And yeah, but in, in this case for, for this group of kids, uh, they, they were really, really excited to try to do really, really well in the competitions that they are going to go to. Um, to not have the competition is actually really hard on them and it's also really hard on me because at the end of the day all I want to do is kind of make them uh, or at least equip them with the best skills possible for them to get get to where they want to be right so even if I equip them with the skills now it's too late they're going to JC now so they've lost the chance to really make a push for JGs again that's the way it is this is a story that's replicated across many different uh, schools in Singapore and uh Unfortunately, that's the that's the way the wind blows. Yeah, yeah. So, what is the topic that you want to discuss with me today? Right today, um, I was thinking of talking about communication. I'm a I'm a communications major in NTU, and I thought, hey, what's the best thing I can talk about that uh I'm to a small extent qualified to talk about it. So I'm gonna talk about what, what? is communication and what the typical process of communication is, and and eventually I'll, I'll talk about how this leads to, um very specific details when it comes to debate that I think it can help everyone in, in, in the debating skills at least a, at least a little bit. Right. So the, the very simple idea is to understand what communication is, right? 
there's three key characteristics um, which people keep in mind at the back of their head. The three characteristics generally go around the idea of how it's dynamic. It's interactive, right? Because when I'm talking, you are laughing and you react to it and I react to your conversations and, and things like that. It's simultaneous. So when I tell you something and you react to me, and yeah, I mean, basically both ends happen at any point in time. And it changes over time. So say, for example, I say something rude and you hate me for it eventually then the communication that we're going to have subsequently, it's not going to be so good. So these factors generally affect um, how people communicate. Do all three factors have to be present in order for it to be considered to be communication? Because by that logic, a debate speech wouldn't be communicating with the judge because it isn't interactive, right? The judge isn't responding to the speech that you're making. Um, technically, yes. Uh, technically, all three characteristics have to apply at the same time. And it, it, it is sometimes not as easy and not as clear-cut in seeing it. So very much like a, a debate speech where you're talking to an adjudicator, the alternative in this case, right, is when you are watching TV, you know, the news reporter is reporting news to you. But the difference in this case is that um, what, for example, what you are interested in in, in the news uh, more often than not really translates to a form of communication towards them. So basically, if your if, if viewership drops uh, when it comes to news, uh, they know that, hey, they're reporting on something that people are not interested in. Or if you get, if you get the L at JG's, la, then yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> that's a form yeah, of communication from the judge. They're telling you that, hey, um, I don't like whatever you're saying. So yeah, that that's the the indirect communication, but it, it still plays a part, and it's, it's it's what it is. And I guess the relevance um to debates is be- because recent motions have fo- centered a lot around things like social media, yeah, uh, and and things like journalism as well, which I assume is also a form of communication. Of course, is there a difference, a marketed difference in the ways that communication has changed, um, from let's say, 20 years ago to today? Generally speaking, I would say that actually it's very much similar but different in the sense that the main, the main forms of mass media are still the same forms of mass media. You still have newspapers, you still have television and things like that. But the difference in this case is that the communication on our end, so on the receiver's end, is very much more responsive as compared to time from the past where we can't really reflect our hatred towards certain television channels or certain news agencies. And now we can really do that, which means that uh, with a more reactive crowd in public, right? There's a lot more often than not uh, more things to talk about because there are more things that people will find controversial. Is there a difference if I communicate via social media versus via a newspaper? Is there a marketed difference in the in what the receiver gets as a result? Right, of course, right. Um, there's a there's this. Canadian communication thinker, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, I, I can't even pronounce his name. He's famous within the communications world. But the, he has this really famous quote, right? That goes about the idea of the medium is the message. And there's two things that there's two things that you can derive from that statement. So firstly, as implied, right? Like the medium of the communication is important in its own right, which is that if you're going to uh, make an announcement through the White House, for example, I mean, in, in a non-Trumpian era, of course, People really listen to it and really treat it seriously. I mean, now they still do, but I advise against it. Anyways, but um, yeah, um, but the difference in this case is that if it's Comedy Central and Comedy Central comes out with this public service announcement and tell people that, hey, we are going into a panic mode and things like that, people will treat it as a joke. Like the medium in which your message is delivered often uh, has its own meaning and people view it in a, in a different way. Can this medium ch- dynamically change even though the platform itself 
um, hasn't changed. So you talked about, you know, Comedy Central giving a PSA, but I think of the most famous uh, Comedy Central show, which is Jon Stewart, right? And Jon Stewart, the daily show with Jon Stewart was at one point the most trusted news source in America. Meanwhile, you know, the White House, when Trump says something versus when Anthony Fauci says something, you know, there's a marketed difference in the reaction that they get from um, the public and also from news outlets. So is there a di- dynamic way in which these mediums can change, even if the platform is exactly the same? What Marshall McLuhan believes in is that when it comes to the content of the message, that's considered a different medium. It's a, it's a medium within a medium in the sense that um, the content obviously changes the significance of what people say. When Trump tells people that, hey, you know what, let's inject people with disinfectants and somehow they'll magically be cured from COVID. Um, that is a form of medium. And that, that, that's content that they're transmitting towards the people. But the difference in this case is that when Anthony Fauci makes certain claims that is scientific and has a scientific backing and explanation behind it, um, that's why the credit, the level of credibility also changes in this case. So as debaters, right, it's extremely important also to take note of the context and the content of certain matter that people are talking about. It's very easy to quote uh, the American president about things. But then at the same time, if you go, you're going to quote Trump on certain matters, the power right. and the significance of it significantly uh, just just plummets in this case. All right, what's the second, second implication of this um, very famous statement? Right, the, the context of it is that um, Marshall McLuhan actually published uh, a, a book and a reading and things like that uh, regarding the statement, the medium as message. And... There are a significant group of people that misread the statement, or and there and there was a misprint at some point in time, where uh it, it stated the medium is the massage rather than the message, so there was a A and E oh. change, <laughs> right? And, and I thought it was a typo. When yeah, you put it on. yeah, that's right. Yeah, but um, it, very much like how our brain very automatically fills in the gaps sometimes when it comes to certain words and we just assume what it is. The medium of the message also implies that our consciousness transforms our perception. Basically, this means that the information that is provided, right, can be broken down and understood in the manner in which the receiver of the information sees fit. So, you tell me something and you may have intended meaning or intended uh, a direction in which... uh, on how you want me to receive this particular piece of information. But based on my perception of the world, I can see it completely differently. Your immediate instinct, if you believe so firmly in your current opinion, is that anybody who challenges that is stupid, right? Yeah, it's, of course. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's an idiot. Yeah, that's the first round of it, which is that you probably wouldn't believe it in the first place. But even if you did, it just it doesn't it wouldn't necessarily change your actions. If that is the case, then my question becomes... How do you use communication to change people's opinions? If people have such fixed perceptions about what they believe in and what they don't, then how does communication play a role in um, correcting you know, perceptions like flat earth theory and stuff like that? I think the main case, the, the main thing that we have to do in the first place, right, is to understand what the role of perception is in all this. It's basically a process in which we make sense of a phenomenon or we make sense of anything that, that works in, in, in the world. And apparently, according to, to how the brain works, right, basically what we do is that we, we select what we want to believe in, we organize them into certain groups, and then we interpret it in a way that really benefits us and that really suits us. So how to go about changing people, right, or changing people's decision, right? In the debating context, right, it's extremely important to always remember that this is a process that we have to do because uh, very often 
it almost seems within a six minute speech or within an eight minute speech that people may engage it's very it almost seems like a magical process where you suddenly show right. people something and suddenly hey it works we need to change that right so like when, when a when a debater says this person will advocate for social change and then that change will happen like a social movement for instance yeah a social movement right that seems to require at least some explanation about the mechanism right as to how the social movement is able to convince people to uh get rid of their initial perceptions and to correct those perceptions yeah exactly and um or another or, or another general argument right that people really make about it is is about how hey um you know if we just show things more on tv and people will go oh i've missed this it it, it, it it's magical, you know? I'm going to start believing right. in this idea. So how would you advise the readers explain that then? I, I think break down the actors first. And you have to you have to first understand that the principal actors in this situation for this magical change to occur, right? It's through the media. And how they go about doing that, right? Is that or how to go about doing that is that you have to first explain the significance and the power of the media in the first place. You have to talk right. you have to portray you have to talk about how the media has the power to actually change a couple of things. Very much like how, but by implied meaning, you know that the media is the group of people that has the power to advocate and cultivate this kind of um, normalization right. of things, right? And they have the ability right. to set the agenda. So when... Uh, but why? So so there's a, a couple of reasons behind it, right? It's because they're always there during controversial conflicts and politics and current affairs. They have to be, or at least at this point in time, um, to the past 300 years of development when it comes to journalism and news, uh, they, they've presented themselves as some form of important standing uh, in the world. Um, in 1817, um, Edmund Burke is a former member of, uh, member of parliament in the UK, actually termed uh, journalist or the news as the fourth estate, in which they're supposed to serve as a form of check and balance to the state uh, when it comes to uh, the kind of decisions that they make uh, from on day-to-day matters. And since then, you, you can say that they do serve that sacred role or they are supposed to serve that sacred role. Different people and different groups in the world or different news agencies see different incentives and motivations behind how they want to go about it and who's, who's the main crowd that they want to service. But it doesn't change the fact that people watch television, people read the news every single day. And that's why they have this power or they have this pull on people to convince people to to state things. It's very normal for people to wake up every day to check the news or to listen to the radio while they're driving and things like that. Which means that the kind of the kind of content that they choose to set, the, the agenda that they want to set for the day, is going to be what people will get to receive. Because realistically speaking, you don't really get the option of knowing what happens in the world without news agencies. Is is that the primary reason why echo chambers have formed in today's society? Because the the ideology of the news has become so polarized, right, in different directions that people mainly consume news source from their preferred ideology. It boils down to the same uh, discussion that we had just a couple of minutes ago about perception, right, in which people have this uh this this form of self-serving bias more often than not and they really kind of just pick and choose what they want to accept and they what, what they want to listen to so are I'm, these biases formed from like from like young is it because i i watched fox news as a child that when i grow up into an adult i will keep watching fox news or like are there other ways in which these biases can form uh i mean generally speaking these biases I mean, I'm no psychologist, but these biases, more often than not, um, is instinctive to human beings. And if generally speaking, the uh, for for the majority of the people, that's that's normal, right? Like what they really are looking for is just truth in the news. So, 
the the news agencies that they decide to pay attention to are usually the ones that have managed to convince them and have really either set the perception of the world for them or are working around the same premise in which they believe that the world runs. So far, we've had this kind of assumption that the news operates by themselves, right? Mm. But in a lot of states, that isn't true, right? The communication platform is also a tool that the state uses to push their narrative forward, right? Whether through the media or through their own um, communication devices. So I guess my question is, like, what are the main tools that a state has in, in, in forwarding a state narrative and how effective are these tools in building, for instance, a culture or a perception that the state prefers? First of all, that depends on the kind of countries that we're working with, we're talking about, right? In, in more liberal countries, there are much lesser opportunities in which states can use uh, mass media in the form of news agencies to really just forward a certain uh a, a certain kind of propaganda that they want to push for right uh, but um uh, a lot of times a lot of news agencies by default will have a certain stance to it they are either far right pro right far left pro left for example and yeah. they align themselves and these news agencies align themselves with the kind of government or the kind of political groups with the same beliefs that they do so um in in a sense news agencies will always always, and, and there's no exemptions to it, we'll always have to pick a side because when certain matters uh, become gray, be, become in the gray area, right, they, they really need to pick a side and stay consistent towards their beliefs on the particular matter. So, But there are some nations where you don't really get to pick a side, right? I mean, like... Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, of course. So, I, I'm just thinking Singapore, yeah, right? Yeah, so, a clear example would be like Singapore. Uh, and I guess my, my question then is, you know, how useful is the media as a tool in comparison to, like, let's say, GovSG YouTube videos? <laughs> you know what I mean? What is the scale of the impact of the media in, in pushing for the state narrative um, versus other means of communication? Like uh, government press releases or like GovSG. The, the significance of the kind of narrative they want to push also depends on the people. So in Singapore, generally speaking, I think most people are not really doubtful of what the government says, which is very important and really helpful as a, for, as a tool for the government. So when GovSG says something, when GovSG publishes numbers, uh, em- employment figures, or even COVID numbers, people don't really doubt it. People, In fact, people go to that and say that, ha, you right. see, this is the accurate one, rather than the right. Facebook post that right. says that we have 2,000 cases a day. So, right. um, generally speaking, that changes. But in this scenario, right, news agencies or main mass media um, actually will have to make a decision between either forwarding government propaganda and forwarding the kind of narratives they want, they, they want to push for, or stick really, really, really close to the objective, uh, the objective truth about matters, which is often mm. the harder way to go about um, doing things. So when it comes to, for example, Singapore, right, there's actually um, a, a different model in which uh, the, the Singapore government actually proposed to the media. And, and when I say the media, I really do mean just this main chunk of Mediacorp and whatever other news channels and other TV like the channels. SPH, yeah, the SPH Straits Times group, right, in which... They work as collaborators in that it sounds nice in in that oh they're having a partnership between the media and the government in that in in that it's allowing them to uh somehow come out with this beautiful vibrant and yet safe environment in which news can be broadcasted. But realistically speaking, right, it's it's really a a form of partnership where the government is checking on the new on on, on these agencies rather than a, a cooperative. Uh, 
uh, aspect to it because it means that there's a lot of content uh, when you're working with the government, right? That it means that you're obligated not to really have a say on or if so, in a very controlled manner. If you're looking at these these nations where there is a, a state narrative that's being forwarded, how does that affect communication on the ground? I think a state narrative oh, sometimes holds true without the aspect of communication to it. In that if the if it's a dictator state, right, and, and they really try to force through certain things, there's there's no point in that. But right, I get that, but what what I meant to say was like so let's say I'm opposed to a particular dictator, right? Right. But media sources, etc. etc. keeps telling me that that person is awesome and I know that it's propaganda, but it makes me fearful that everyone else around me actually loves the dictator, and that makes me afraid to speak up even though um everyone else around me also hates the dictator. The communication that we have is one of, we all love the dictator because of that self-censorship and that fear of being the only one in the entire country or in the entire group that holds that particular opinion. Yeah, I mean... Is that a, a way of, of like communication suppression? Th- there is communication suppression, as, as you have uh, aptly put it, which is that um, in, in cases in which you are not really allowing for a voice to really react to the kind of uh, information that is communicated. Uh, some will arguably say news agencies like the Xinhua Shi in China, right? In that if you're going to always suppress negative contents, if you're not even going to allow Xi Jinping to be called, we need a pool and, and, and things like that. It, it means that it means that there's some form of a breakdown in communication. This means that, that the people outside have no idea and don't have a clear figure when it comes to the number of people that uh, disagrees with certain right. directions you know if the comment section right. is locked for every single right. news article that you post if you're not allowed to have um opinion pieces and opinion articles without the potential ramifications of being jailed indefinitely then there is right. then then communication doesn't work in the manner in which it benefits both parties do you think that fear is the main reason for this destroy between what you think and what you communicate? Yeah, fear fear is a big reason, but I mean the lack of knowledge and the lack of information that is provided to people is have to, it has to be the biggest reason because that is the basis of everything. So imagine if you're just a, a random person in North Korea without the access of access to information as to uh, what really happens in the world and you don't really have right. the accurate information to, to realize that Kim Jong-un didn't actually win 15 different events in the Olympics. Right. It means right. that your worldview is set on just that. But also uh, the, the, the extent in which uh, people clamp down on matters. So say for example, the extent right. in which China clamped down on matters. I think North Korea is a really extreme case um, where a certain to a huge extent, globalization is still very much present in in the lives of every single individual from China, right? It's not hard to tell when it comes to certain disparities that they may have, certain luxuries that they may have, or the other way around. They they may realize or they may follow suit when it comes to the proper uh, the government propaganda, and they really believe in it because they realize right, that actually right. their lives are not that much shittier than the ones that of people right. from another country. I look at um. The public anger, for instance, directed towards you know the government for their handling of the foreign worker situation here in Singapore, and then I look at you know the YouTube comments or the Facebook comments to Lawrence Wong's and Josephine Teo's um posts, right on mm. their social media, and there's a marketed disparity, right, because on their posts it's all praises and stuff, right. And I'm just thinking like those comments seem to uh engage in some degree of self censorship, right. 
you are essentially wiring wiring la, right? When Lee Sin Long gives a public speech, you know, even if on the ground I know people don't agree with what the government has done, the communication towards the government is one of you're doing a great job. And I'm wondering like whether this is damaging. I know it's weird, but a, a general pastime that I had before this was that I usually used to I, I used to go to um Yahoo and I used to look at news articles on Yahoo. You must be thinking at this point in time, what what am I doing on Yahoo? Like wait, how how is that even a credible news source? Uh it's not it's not really uh, they, but they really but they adapt articles from uh different different news agencies, Reuters, CNA, Fox, Forbes and, and all that and all that stuff. But the interesting thing, right, is to read the comment section in Yahoo and you realize that almost 90 to 95% of comments relates to some form of hate towards the SG government, towards um, the PAP and how oh, the magical 70% has done it again and they failed tremendously again. And it's, First off, it's a little weird that that entertains me now that I say it out in a podcast. But at the same time, um, it, it's also interesting to note that um, not nece- it's not necessarily true that um, comments uh, are undergoing some form of self-censorship uh, in, in, in that particular right. regard. But what I think is a difference in this case is that there's some form of self-serving biasness when it comes to the individuals in that they are willing to isolate the difference between um, the certain things that Lawrence Wong says and other videos that are talking about uh, the foreign worker, uh, worker situation right. in Singapore. In that the people that are likely to be praising and applauding the kind of efforts could very potentially also be the same group of people that just don't really care as much about the foreign workers. It's actually really, really difficult to tell what the general sentiment of the grassroots are by purely having responses on uh, on, on the internet or on, or on even news media where people apparently write in and complain about certain matters. Right. It, it doesn't really work. Right magically like that. So you mentioned just now that, you know, the Singapore population has a culture of being a bit more compliant, right, or a bit more trusting of the government. Uh, that seemed yep. to only last insofar as you don't insult Liverpool, right? <laughs> um, so let's talk yeah. about, let's talk yeah, exactly. about um, the recent hoo-ha with the uh, COVID heroes. Always walk alone, what, man. What, what, what? Yeah, the, 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 the must always walk alone, something like that. The mana, Mawa man, right? Yeah, must, yeah the Mawa yeah. man. And, right. and, and, yeah. and what I was really pissed off about was that that guy got all the, a lot of backlash. The fact that there was a blatantly racist um, depiction of an Indian superhero <laughs> did not get half as much backlash you know, as, as Mawa man, who just, you know... <laughs> like hurt the feelings of poor Liverpool, like just it's just ridiculous. But um, I wanted to talk about that because I think it's a great case study in communication, right? And mm. how one piece of communication tool that was used by the government could backfire spec- spectacularly. Um, what are the lessons that you think can be discerned from, um, from what happened? This is actually a good reflection that. It's not necessarily always true that the uh that news agencies or or just the media in general is always aligned to governments even even when governments are paternalistic. In that you can see that there's clearly a disjoint in communication when it comes to the kind of things that the creators of Mawa Man and the and the rest of the virus vanguard as compared to what the government really wants in this situation. Um but at the same time, right, this there's also a disjoint between what the government wants and what the people wants in that the government went, okay, sure, you know what, let's give this a shot. And then they realized that everyone's thinking this is utter, this is utter BS in that, 
you you can't you can't just do that. It's racist, and you know, there's Marwa Man, and Marwa Man is clearly pissing people off with a strike off a Liverpool crest. I, I'm looking at the image as we talk about it. Um, yeah, so I I think I think first of all, this goes to show that the 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 content creators are not necessarily aligned with the government, in that they don't necessarily know what the intended government propaganda is. Right. Because if, if they did, and, and surely, I, I don't think Singapore is one of the countries where they're stupid enough to commit the same dumb mistakes that they've been doing for the past, uh, that they had done accidentally or intentionally over the past God knows how many years when it comes to these kind of propagandas. But, um, so that's the first thing, that there's a disjoint. And second thing, it's also reflective of uh, the, the kind of community that we're living in right now. Uh, as we talked about at the start of the podcast, in that people are extremely reflect, uh, reactive through the use of social media right. and through the use of mass media right. now. In that when it comes to anything that really pokes discomfort to them, and in this case, people that really pissed because they actually support Liverpool and now something that the government provides. Which is truly them, ridiculous, it, it, right? I mean, like, what kind of society are you living in when... A cartoon of a character that does not like Liverpool, which newsflash is like eighty percent of the population, like can can be so damaging to your ego that you know you literally campaign the character out of out of public eye. That's 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 incredible. Um yeah, it's incredible, and actually, uh, from a communication standpoint, it also proves another theory. So there's this theory by the name of hypodermic needle theory or the magical bullet. So in that, uh, the theory basically suggests that um, co- uh, the, the media, right, as long as they deliver a piece of information to people, it, it's, it's basically like a ma- magical gun where uh, the content is the knowledge and then you just shoot the bullet into the person's head and they just receive it as it is and go, oh, okay, okay, I get what the virus vanguard is doing and I get how Mawa men will always remind me to always walk alone. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work that way. People are always reactive. Right to the kind of content and if it doesn't suit them they will just say it out unless there's some form of severe suppression that's going on so just because you have news doesn't mean backlash wouldn't exist you kind of talked a little bit just now about like ways that debaters use you know media and communication arguments right um are there other sort of assumptions you think that they make when they see a media motion that you sort of want to correct or dispel yeah, so the first assumption, as we have mentioned, is it's how the, the media is magical and how everything that the media does is important, one. And secondly, uh, the, the second assumption is, is the assumption towards how media always has an incentive to portray the truth. Uh, or the other way around, I mean, it really depends on the kind of motion and how they automatically assume certain things. So they either assume that the media has incentive to report on the news... Right. Or alternatively, they have an incentive to appeal to the rich and the powerful. It really depends on the context in which you're working uh, right. with. But I think that in debates, right, it's extremely important to establish the context of which, of, of which before you can uh, really go into it. In other words, you can't assume these things. You have to really break it down and explain it. In that, you have to talk about how the context sets itself mm. up to make the news agencies do what they do. Right. In the context of Singapore, um, you have to talk about how uh, uh, they have uh, a, a tendency to be incentivized to not be cancelled and therefore report on perspectives that follow suit and follow in line with the kind of directions that the government wants. Right. That 
um, in, in the US, uh, most news agencies, most newspaper agencies, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they have an incentive to report in the general direction that favours a certain group of people, given how... Because they already have built up a viewer or readership base that has a particular demographic, right? And also, at the same time, it's also about the, the, the financial aspect of it. Uh, for example, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and multiple uh, rich people, billionaires and uh, even people in, in Vegas, they own uh, news agencies. So you have to recognize that there are times in which uh, these news agencies um, are incentivized to only help the rich and powerful. And if you make these assumptions, you can't make these assumptions either because there are conflicting assumptions that people can make, which means you have to talk about why they do what they do and how they go about doing it in, 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 in that how they really protect the rich and powerful before you can really make your point because if not it doesn't necessarily stand it's just and it's just an assumption that you're making how do perceptions you know fit within this communications and media reality there are certain critical factors that um has to change in perception for people to have, have a different understanding of what the media is really trying to uh propose right so these perceptions right there are there are a lot of them and some of them applies only to face-to-face interaction like physiological uh, perceptions and things like that. But the ones that really generally affect um, the, 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 the domain of mass media and how people re- uh, receive it, right, uh, are the main chunks of the expectations, um, the social roles, and, and this last idea of uh, membership in cultures. So we'll talk about them one by one. And generally speaking, this is also how you would probably want to break, down, uh, break them down in, 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 in debates and really, really forward a certain argument that you want. First of all, um, but, but I think we, we really need to work with uh, emotion in this case to really uh, explain this process out. So uh, let's pick emotion. Say, for example, something like this house would force the media to um, display, promote, and report women's sport equally to men's sport. Mm. Um, uh, emotion like that. Right. I think um, the most common argument that comes out in this case right, is that now the increased representation of women in, new, uh, in, in sporting events on TV will change the perception of people because when people magically see the feats of or, 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 that, that the women are achieving in sports, they realize that, wow, they are amazing. We will also watch them. But realistically right. speaking, you have to break that down and you have to look at um, the, the various factors, the various perceptions that people may have when it comes to certain matters. And, and, and this is particular, particularly important also for, for the opposition side that's really trying to oppose this argument. You look at it in three different aspects. One, in, in expectations. And the expectation in this case is that they're expecting Usain Bolt to run 9.58 seconds. They're expecting people to come in a close second and third at around 10 seconds. Mm. If women's sports, amazing in their own right, and definitely more than five seconds faster than me. If it's five seconds faster than you, it's like 15 faster than me. So <laughs> Yeah, but, <laughs> exactly. And, and that, wow, it's amazing. They are really fast. And they are achieving the maximum in which the human body can and, and that's amazing in its own right but when they come in at a world record timing of 12 seconds the the, the extent of through uh, is, is going to be different women's sports like women's football are, are less physical in nature they're less fast-paced in nature so when certain groups of people have a set expectation on a certain uh, idea of how a sport should be played the increase in repre- the increase the increment in representation of these different sports doesn't necessarily change these perceptions and doesn't necessarily uh, fulfill the expectations in which people want, which will hurt these sports, uh, th- th- uh, these women's sports, rather than really help them. Um, moving on, um, next idea of social roles. Uh, 
this is something that really differs based on uh, the kind of motion as well. For people, it will be social roles, but for certain ideologies and certain actions, for example, murder and violence, right? Mm. It's about the social acceptance levels. When it comes to social roles, it, it's, it's a chicken egg situation at, at some point in time where if you realize that if women's sports are unfortunately less recognized and less uh, glorified as compared to, to the male counterparts, right? In that they're being paid lesser, there's lesser attention on them. An increase in media, if the increase in media doesn't really reflect on the kind of lifestyle and the kind of impact that they have in drawing a billion people to watch it, at the, uh, to watch the women's workout at the same time, then the kind of intended effects doesn't necessarily apply. So it's going to need analysis when it comes to weighing between whether or not that particular act of increasing representation would definitely mean that a lot of people will start watching it. Or if it doesn't, then it clearly means that there's a problem-solution mismatch and that maybe it means that you have to have other regulations to make sure that people are paid more in this case and very automatically perspectives will change. But when it comes to uh, things like violence on TV, um, the social acceptance levels is, is an important aspect in which you have to consider. Um, right. Um, that, that's a, that's another theory, another communications theory that goes uh, by the sound of cultivation theory. Um, it's literally what it means in that, that the, the media has, uh, or television has, has the general influence on people in that it shapes people's worldviews, right? So if you're going to show violence on TV every single day for 15 years, for example, you are, you tend to right. believe that North Korea is a closed state. You tend to believe that, uh, that the Middle East has bombs ridden all over every single corner in every single market, right? Um, right. um, there's that aspect to go with. But also the idea that, look, just because you see more violence and go on TV, it doesn't change the fact that you, you know that murder is wrong. It doesn't also, it also doesn't necessarily, uh, imply that an individual will be more incentivized to commit murder in this case, just because they've seen it so much on TV. It doesn't work right. like that. And I think this is really important, right? Because in motions like this house would ban violent video games, for instance, which is very popular, right, at the JG's level. Yeah. There will always be arguments like, oh, it's going to increase the rate of violence amongst teenage youth who now think that violence is okay. And what you're saying is that, like, that doesn't happen because of social disapproval? Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't magically happen like that. There are certain other trigger factors that that will that will direct in this uh that will direct people into this uh this habit of killing and increased violence. But it's definitely not just media representation. It's extremely important to break it down into a few aspects. In that one, uh, in that one, it applies to a very specific group of people. And that uh, sorry, uh, the the first thing that they want to talk about right is actually that the overall gradual increase in acceptability. At first, it's not okay to do anything. And because of all this extent of violence, it, it, it's, uh, it's possible that people will start thinking, like kids will start thinking that punching people is okay. And of the, of the million kids that start thinking that people, punching people is okay, one or two may fall through the cracks. And this one or two that falls through the cracks will then go on to progress to doing really more problematic and heinous stuff. So the explanation as to whether or not it will increase violence shouldn't be a case where you're talking about, there's this, there's this form of mess increase uh belief and desire for violence but rather right. but rather the one or two individuals that can already sufficiently cause harm so in other words you have to accept the truth that most people are not going to commit murder just because they played grand theft auto moving on lastly to the idea of membership in cultures right um membership in cultures plays a more significant part when it comes to 
censorship motions when it comes uh, in, in debates. Um, censorship motions often suggest that the states have something that they want to censor. Maybe government, the government in Singapore doesn't want people, uh, doesn't want to have media portrayal of the use of recreational drugs and things like that. And, and it's extremely important to analyze that and put it on a microscope, right? And think about whether or not it really affects the kind of culture that we're living in. I'm about to wrap up, but before we do, I wanted to discuss one perhaps more disjointed part of media uh, that has been fairly popular uh, in the last couple of years as a motion in JGs. And that is the concept of media that is, or communication that is not supposed to be released, but is released anyway, right? Things like um, leaks, for instance, right, by Edward Snowden, right, or like WikiLeaks. So there are motions um, more recently, like this house believes that the world would be better off without WikiLeaks. Um, where do these kind of illicit communications play in terms of how it affects the public? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Where the supposed, unsupposed release of certain documents are released, then there is something that is communicated to uh, the public. And that that reaction, right, uh, more often than not, uh, serves its purpose in its own right. Remember, the medium is the message. And in this case, right. an unintended release of a particular piece usually increases the credibility of pieces, which means more people, people will definitely, will more often than not really believe in these documents and these articles. That's why people like the Flat Earthers will work on the 15 pieces of government documents that provides explanation when it comes to, uh, uh, when it comes to UFOs and really hang on to it for the rest of their lives and believe that they are aliens and the Earth is flat. Right. Um, right. So, in that case, when it comes to the, the release of items such as the WikiLeaks and things like that, when it pertains to motions, it's, uh, it's a different perspective to consider when you, when you, when you start thinking about the communication aspect of it. More often than, right. more often than not, you always look at the political implications towards things like the Panama, exactly. the, 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 yeah. the Panama Papers and things like that. But, um, but it's also important to, or interesting as a, as an alternate argument to look at, to look into the idea of, uh, unreleased documents and how, um, this could potentially cultivate a, a general sentiment of trust or distrust, depending on the group that you're talking about. And I suppose that there's a cultural aspect as well in the sense that if WikiLeaks proves to be so popular amongst the people as it has in terms of like its sources being trustworthy, and I'm not saying that WikiLeaks sources aren't trustworthy, but you know they are they by and large I think they are verified. It creates a culture where more people might think releasing you know, inverted commas, classified information is the way to get the public to believe it. So they can release fake documents as classified information and force public hysteria, for instance, right? In these situations, people like to assume that the media is a, is a tool and a, and a channel to provide the truth to people, which in these cases could be a dangerous case of how uh, the media doesn't necessarily fall into this particular category rather than rather they're actually just trying to uh drive up interest such that people can start looking at this dying newspaper again uh in that it doesn't necessarily always work in the manner that benefits the people it could generate hysteria and could generate mass panic without necessarily having a true cause behind it what annoys you the most about this activity that 
you've unfortunately stumbled into. Something, for example, me, I struggled to get over, and I still struggle when I debate, is um, stuttering. and Not 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 necessarily a, a really problematic stuttering at this point in time, but it used to uh, take up a significant amount of time when it comes to my speeches in that I spend maybe up to a minute stuttering, just going, uh, 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 you know, so, uh, 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 well, uh, the thing is, uh, uh, and um, people need to find a way to get past this hurdle. If not, it's just going to significantly hurt their confidence in debate and they just wouldn't want to debate anymore, which is sad. Or it could save some people in, in stopping debating. But yeah, if you want to continue debating... <laughs> Saves you a lot of time. Yeah, it'll and save pain. you a lot of time. <laughs> moving on, in very many years afterwards, but it is problematic sometimes. So that's how. How do you get over um you know that stuttering? Because I know that there are plenty of kids out there who, you know, are currently thinking that's exactly what I'm going to. You know, I can't get my points out clearly, um, without spending a minute, you know, stuttering. It's very easy to just say just keep debating for three years, for five years, and somehow at some point in time, your magical stuttering will disappear. Uh, it's important then to look at the reasons behind why you're stuttering in the first place. And I think stuttering is commonly associated with confidence and with fluency of the language. So when it comes to matters like stuttering, if you really have it, then it just means that you got to do the full package. you got to improve all around in that you have to help boost your confidence and the only manner in which you can do so is that you have to convince yourself that the arguments that you're making are good and they're and they're coherent and they're something that people will want to hear and the clearest way of doing that rather than lying to yourself is to constantly be engaged and involved in debating activities getting familiar with common arguments uh, understanding the logic behind these arguments rather than just regurgitating them out as your coach would feed them to you. And generally speaking, when you do that, um, your stuttering gets better. It's, if most people notice or take note and record their, their speeches over very many rounds that they go through every single week, week in, week out, right? Um, they realize that when it comes to motions that they're more confident in, that they're more passionate in, they usually don't stutter as much. They usually have a million things that they want to say and they, ju- they just go at it. They just go, hey, 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 let's talk about school uniforms and things like that. And somehow, suddenly, people will start losing the stutter even if it's just a little bit. So there's that aspect to it. But the other side of it is also people sometimes stutter because they can't get words across uh, in a fluent manner. Sometimes people have problems with pronunciation. Sometimes... It's very much like how we would definitely struggle when we're going to speak a foreign language, right? Like, we're not very fluent in that language so uh it, it does help generally speaking if you're just reading more and you're just really uh doing more it's very much like how uh, a lot of training sessions sometimes by certain coaches would devote entire sessions rather than debating to just exemplariness speaking or just uh even simpler like really just reading off scripts and just trying to get the fluency and the emphasis on certain words more accurately uh and those things help but i have to say i think Confidence is really a, the, the, the biggest aspect of it. And until you can get over your, your own hurdle, um, no one else can really help you. Trust the coaches when the coaches tell you that your content is good. If the content is bad, most of the time debating coaches are not as nice to say that, ah, 
they're not bad, but we can do something better. Most people don't say that. People just kind of go, at some point in time, uh, <laughs> it's not right. It's not working, pal. Yeah, my, my kids have learned to value when I say that their speeches are not bad because they know that when they are bad, I tell them that yeah, they are and, bad. And, and, and at, first, at first, I was initially thinking, hey, maybe a lot of coaches out there are super nice and they will find a way to make it sound nice for people. But then I realized that actually that's not really true. Coaches are nice, but when it comes to speeches and if they're crap, at some point in time, people will just tell them, hey, it's crap. So... More of the story, believe right. your coaches. And I mean that that reminds me of like, yeah, teachers, right? Because like I had teachers who were super chill in things like civics lessons, and they wouldn't give a sh. What sexuality education? F- that we're gonna we're gonna like you know give you a time to do math, for instance. Um, but then when it comes to their own subject, you know, it's like it's a complete one eighty personality shift. They become deadly serious about about what they are, what they know about and what they're passionate about. And I think that's the same for coaches, lah. you know, we we joke and we chill and we are pretty, you know, nice people outside of um outside of debating. But when it comes to giving a speech, you know, we're we're, we're gonna be honest. We're gonna be honest with you about about what you need to do to to get better. If you think that your coaches are nice people, wait till you lose around oh. unfairly uh in a tournament. And then you see you can see um exactly how nice your coaches are to the judge. You know, so I've been I've been on the side of the hmm, that judge really made a bad call, and I'm going to write an email to to the chief edge saying, "Hmm, this is mm. questionable." But I've also be on the other side where you know, like I remember a few years back, this was this was way back when, man. I'm I think I'm thinking like 2017, 2017 I think or twenty sixteen, where I went to go judge MIDCs, right? And I was judging this round between um, Diamond High and JJC, and uh, I gave the debate to JJC. And I I knew Yu Hui. Yu Hui was a good friend mm. of mine. Uh, Yu Hui was the co- is the coach of Dunman High. And wow, <laughs> did she did she let me have it? <laughs> like <laughs> I saw a completely different side to her that day. Yeah, people don't, don't fool around and, when it comes uh, to matters like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they they really really don't. And that is um, and, and I think that's uh, that's something that you eventually see within your coaches the fire right and that passion for the things that they do. Any other tips to 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 work on the stuttering? Because I know a lot of my kids would be very interested in in this particular um, segment. Stuttering is it's it's something that takes time. You you can't just magically get rid of stuttering over three months. Sometimes some maybe three months is good enough for some people, but. A lot of times, it, it takes quite a while to really completely remove the stuttering. And... Do you do, like, vocal exercises? Uh, I did vocal exercises, but for different reasons. Uh, little do a lot of people know, not... I, I, I did drama before this, so uh, vocal exercises, ah, okay, it's, okay. It, it means something else to me. But, uh, yeah, vocal exercises right, right, are, right. are definitely part of it. It's, it's very hard for me to say that it's not important when I've done it, uh... But I think uh, there are certain other things that can really show off faster, can really sh- provide faster effects to people. It, very much like a Panadol to a headache in that if you, when you go up to a round and you have really organized notes on how you want to approach the debate, be in cue cards or being in a full scat paper, um, the important situation and the important thing to think of in this case is that it has to be organized, it has to be legible. It doesn't help your confidence if everything's messy. Coaches, especially at 
some levels, especially in important rounds um, of tournaments, like the Nationals, for instance, uh, tend to like to script yep. speeches for for kids. Yep. Uh, and that's that's perfectly understandable, right? Uh, um, I'm guilty of doing that myself for like first props and and stuff. And that, that's something that is is you you there's obviously a reason why that they're doing that, right? Because they they know that there is a particular way to phrase an idea that would be more persuasive than if you were allowed to do mm. it by yourself. And so that's why that's done. But I think one of the unfortunate consequences of something like this is that when your coach is writing things out to you in their language and the way that they speak, that's when you tend to not find it to be a natural way of speaking to yourself. And I think that's where you end up stuttering a lot. For the kids who are less confident with their language, scripting is actually, in my opinion, pretty dangerous in terms of um, regressing their ability to work on their own style and to correct that stuttering. Will you agree? I think, I think at this point in time, it's also important for the kids to also understand that when the coaches give you a script, yes, it makes your life easier, but if you just read off scripts, then you're not actually the no, one debating. You're, and yeah, you're, not, you're debating. not actually the one digesting the information. I just know. The thing is, educators know when certain things are scripted, and they're fine with it right. as long as it's coherent and it works to the debate. But and it, when and they can tell that... La, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and when, they, and when they, can, they can tell that it's two scripted arguments against one another and the conflict doesn't necessarily exist because the rebuttals are, are guided towards a different direction. It, it, it just... The, the debate just sounds manufactured and it sounds weird because it's like a mismatch of audios. So, um, it, so the important thing to take note, like, very much like the reason why you say you want people to write things down in point form is for people to really understand these things for for what they are themselves. I'm speaking to the kids here, right? There's this fear that if if you tell your coach, you know what, it's okay, just give me a point form speech, right? Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to work it out. And then you don't. You're going to get blamed for losing the round. Mm. Right? And I, I get th- I completely understand this fear because it will be a fear that I have myself, you know, when, when I was in secondary school. But I think you also have to realize that um, your inability to speak coherently is going to hurt you tremendously in many, 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 many subsequent rounds and in life as well, lah. Right? I'm just gonna be frank about yeah. it. And 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 to use secondary school debating as a training platform to get over some of these hurdles is perhaps more important than the number of trophies that you will keep in your trophy cabinet after you stop debating. It would be nice if they can get it to themselves and you just give them questions and then they answer you and then you craft the case from there, right? And for yeah. JGs, obviously, I think that, that, that is completely doable. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think that, I think that's helpful. I think actually what, all the things that is really helpful that people don't really pay attention to is actually like a like a post-debate a post debate analysis, right? Uh, it becomes habitual at times where you just, at the end of a round, right, you go to the edge and go, say, hey, can I get my feedback? But no one really looks at it afterwards. Um, and, and that's a problem if you don't. Because some of the critical mistakes that you have made back then, you probably would make again if you actually don't pay attention to it. So uh, go back and review uh, the speeches that you have made for you to really improve. Uh, that that's like one last thing. And I know this is dragging on a little, but uh, I'm reminded that one, what the, because things that actually annoy me in debate is, um, uh, I, I, I don't know how to accurately put it, but respect. Um, 
I, I think ah okay yeah I, I think a lot of times and it, it's not people's fault most of the time in that you know halfway through a speech you don't wave the person that gave you a POI down and conversely you you either either you don't do that or on the other side you constantly bombard people with POIs um and it, it's all it, it's all down to the idea of you you want to try to maximize your chances of winning right and you want to disrupt your opponent as much as possible right but I think like there's a certain level of respect that people need to have when it comes to debating that really helps them generally speaking as a person I think while a lot of times you're doing things within the rules you know POI every 5 seconds and like every 5 seconds book every 5 seconds book every 5 seconds book but if you do that for oh, that's yeah, that's if you do that right. for, that's not right. Yeah, if, yeah, if you do that for the entirety of your or, or of the of the four minutes that you have, right? That's just not right. And similarly, if someone is genuinely having a POI and you just don't wave the person down, that's not right either. Or committing at hominem mistakes during in your speeches, that's not right either. Um, I think that it's also extremely. I think it's extremely important to take note when we're engaging in in verbal combat, right? <laughs> it's 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 inevitable that people will get a little pissy or get a little angry at the end of the day. But it will be wasted if you if you forget your manners during this period of time.